from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only inner circle club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at NewtsInnerCircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. On this episode of Newt's World, I recently wrote a cover story for Newsweek about China entitled, What I and Everyone Else Got Wrong About China and Why We Need to Fix It Now. I wrote the article because I'm in the process of writing a book about China, and I'm deep into the research and writing phase. As I've been researching the past and the present, I realized how remarkably I got China wrong. Like many Western scholars and policymakers, I bought into this idea that open global markets and information sharing would bring China out of its communist totalitarian past into some kind of democratic or at least open future. I don't think I could have gotten it more wrong. China has always had its own agenda, and that was, and very much still is, 
China first, China at the center of the world, China above all other interests. What I've learned is how concerted they are in their efforts to undermine the United States and other democratic Western countries with a very general direction for global domination, both technologically and economically. And in that context, I think we can better understand the tariff war we are facing now. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Ward, Next Generation National Security Fellow at Center for a New American Security and author of China's Vision of Victory. You know, it's become more and more obvious that our strategies for dealing with China have not worked and will not work. For years, we watched America's manufacturing sector gradually migrate towards Asia. Right now, we're watching China, through the giant telecom company Huawei, work to dominate the entire worldwide deployment of 5G technology. Pretty soon, we could be operating in a world in which the Internet as we know it is maintained and controlled by a totalitarian communist country. A dramatic change from the American-based open and free internet that we're used to. I think our strategies are failing because they're not based on reality. They're based on two key myths. Decades ago, we, and I include myself in this, sold ourselves a fantasy version of China. The real China is a lot more formidable and dangerous than we wanted to believe, or frankly, than we want to believe right now. Part of our misreading, I think, was based on our own arrogance and our own wishful thinking, in part on a deliberate Chinese strategy of deception, a policy of showing us a face that looked pleasant, reasonable, and non-threatening. My favorite example is in 1979, Deng Xiaoping, who at that time was the dominant political figure in China, comes to the U.S. He's a very short person doesn't look personally very aggressive or very much like somebody who's going to dominate you. He goes to a rodeo in Texas, and he puts on a cowboy hat. He looks so friendly, so interesting and willing to be like Americans. I think that picture softened his image across the entire West, and it basically muted warnings by dozens of scholars and intelligent analysts about his real intentions. People kind of looked at it and said, oh, he can't be a real threat. It helped obscure the fact he spent a year studying Leninism in Moscow. Well, he was a genuine Leninist, a person who believes in a centralized dictatorship. And he devoted his entire lifetime to create, implement, and then govern that dictatorship. So we looked at him and thought, oh, he's okay. Well, he was okay for a guy who wants a total dictatorship. As for our own hubris, our own sense of how big we were, how powerful we were, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union led us to a great overstatement. We had helped win World War I. We had won World War II. We had won the Cold War. And so some American politicians and some scholars started talking about a new world order, that everything was going to resemble the American model. And in that context, we looked at China. We thought, well, you know, they're immature. They're economically underdeveloped. Inevitably, they're going to have to learn to be like us because, after all, that's how they'll ultimately be successful. 
we thought that the world was going to become much more focused. You know, we thought democracy was coming to the Middle East. We thought that China would evolve into a democracy. And it turned out that both of those were clearly uh, overreach historically. Deng in 1992 goes to South China on what's called the Southern Tour. And he gives a series of speeches that are decisive in the development of modern China. He basically says, we have to become prosperous or the Chinese people are going to throw out our government. So for the Chinese Communist government to survive, it had to favor economics that would lead to prosperity. Deng understands that if you don't have open markets and competition, and if you don't focus on economic results over ideology, the whole system's going to come to a grinding halt, the Chinese people are going to rebel, and the dictatorship's going to be gone. So he calls for a system that's a radical change from Mao Zedong. He says, I don't care if a cat is black or a cat is white. I care whether or not it can catch a mouse. And what he was saying was, don't tell me about theoretical ideology. Tell me if it's going to work. Is it going to produce goods? Are people going to be more prosperous? Well, that was an amazing break. And lots of us said, you know, once they go to free markets, they're going to go to free thinking. They're going to open up. They're going to become different. Well, we didn't realize, and frankly, until I really began investigating Deng's own biography, I didn't fully appreciate. He was calling for open markets in order to have enough prosperity to sustain the communist dictatorship, the opposite of what we thought he was doing. And so his goal was relentless and ruthless to make sure that the Communist Party stayed in charge, and that's why they needed prosperity. Now, as an economic strategy, it was brilliant. 300 million Chinese are now middle class, basically the size of the entire American population, one of the great economic achievements in history. Now, we went on from believing that free markets would lead to freedom to believing that if we could get tens of thousands of Chinese students to come to American colleges and universities, that would infect them with a passion for liberty. When a speaker hosted uh, Zhang Jimen, who at that time was the head of China, his daughter was at a university in Michigan. And I had the sense of, boy, this is great. She's going to learn about freedom. Well, no, actually what they learned about was that America is a kind of weird place with strange politics, a weird culture. And then they went back home to be Chinese. But they went back home knowing math, engineering, science, which they'd learned from us. We then thought, all right, we're going to admit China to the World Trade Organization because it's a rules-based system that really reflects the entire model of the Western world that people have to obey the rules. And we thought if we let them in the World Trade Organization, they would learn to obey the rules and that would make them more like us. The Chinese thought this was terrific. They got to pretend to obey the rules while cheating. So, for example, the People's Liberation Army runs entire units, thousands of people, whose only job is to hack into American systems and steal our intellectual property. This is clearly the official policy of the Chinese government. And the estimate by the Director of National Intelligence under Obama was they were stealing about $460 billion a year as a deliberate strategy. So today, I'd have to say, and many of my friends who were with me in encouraging China's entry into the World Trade Organization, it was just a mistake. And they're now inside, and frankly, they don't obey the rules, and they cheat whatever they can. At the same time, a lot of our so-called experts understood that if they were negative about China, they weren't going to get to go to China, and they weren't going to get subsidized, and they weren't going to be able to publish. 
there are a number of team experts who are basically sycophantic about China because they know that that way they get to go back to Beijing and they get to go to Shanghai and they might get a year of teaching at one of the Chinese universities. There's a whole block of people who, no matter what China does, they are, in fact, going to always explain it in the most pro-Chinese way possible. And that made it harder for us to get to the truth. The first big myth that we all wanted to believe was that the Chinese wanted to change. Now, I have to say, this in retrospect is almost laughable. Here's a 5,000-year-old civilization. Here is a communist party with a deep ideological commitment to a way of governing. The easiest way to think of this is you and I read every day about Xi Jinping, the president of the People's Republic of China, and that makes him sound normal. He's the head of a government. But in fact, that's not what he is. Xi Jinping is, first of all, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, second, chairman of the military commission, and third, president of the People's Republic of China, in that order. If the news media always referred to him as General Secretary Xi Jinping, we'd have a much better sense of the fact that we were dealing with a Chinese Communist Party rather than dealing with a traditional Western government. And in fact, in Xi Jinping's case, it's important to remember the military commission exists because in the Chinese system, the People's Liberation Army does not owe its loyalty to the government. It owes its loyalty to the Communist Party. And that is Xi's primary power base. The Chinese Communist Party has 90 million members. That means that the Chinese Communist Party has more members than the combined populations of California, Florida, and Texas. That's just the membership. So the members are everywhere. Every major company has to have a member on its board of governors. Every community has party members involved in decision-making. And the general secretary, as the leader of the party, sits at the top of the system, and that is the real base of his power, not the government. Furthermore, the Chinese Communist Party is really interesting because we tend to look at the collapse of the Soviet system and assume that that's the inevitable outcome for a communist party. But since 1921, when Deng Xiaoping and others founded it, it has been a Leninist party. Lenin stood for central control from the top, and he really understood a way of power that was remarkable. If you go back and look at Lenin taking over in 1917, the degree of control they built in, the way they organized things, was astonishing. And people like Deng Xiaoping were learning how Lenin operated, how he thought, how he put it together. In that setting, and this is what I think is very, very hard for Westerners to appreciate, Leninism is at the core of the Chinese Communist Party. So you have a Chinese Communist Party founded on centralized control from the top, which is then wrapped in Chinese culture and civilization, which is 5,000 years old. And Chinese culture and civilization is very authoritarian. And in 5,000 years, there may be a total of 30 or 40 years out of 5,000, where there was a brief period of thinking that democracy would be cool. All the rest is based on some kind of authoritarian leader, an imperial system, a structure of bureaucracy, an order of obedience. So what you now have is a party which is absolutely committed to one thing, and this is, I think, one of the things that's so hard for us to understand. It's committed to the survival of itself. 
90 million communists actually believe that they ought to be in charge. And they have very little interest in sharing that. So we are negotiating always, not with a government, but with a political party which owns a government, not a government which owns a political party. And as a result, you have to think about what is a Leninist state like? What has centralized control from the top down? It has an absolute total willingness to lie to outsiders. In fact, it doesn't even think it's lying because you simply tell outsiders whatever you need to tell them. Purging itself of dissenters and having a constant sort of turmoil. And every time a senior Chinese leader tries to advocate opening the system up, he's either put in prison or he's given house arrest. One of their top leaders spent the last 20 years of his life in house arrest. And they do it in a calm methodical way. It's the world they have adjusted to. The first real break point, which again, people tended, including me, tended to not fully appreciate, was in 1989, when there were popular demonstrations in Tiananmen Square. Hundreds of thousands of people came out. There were actually demonstrations all across China. And faced with that, people who were in charge, starting with Deng Xiaoping, looked around and thought, wait a second. The Russians are falling apart. Gorbachev's idea of glasnost and perestroika opening up the system isn't working. They're going to collapse. Why would we want to follow them in being stupid? In fact, watching the decay of the Soviet Union increased the toughness of the Chinese leadership. And the 30th anniversary of the massacre at Tiananmen Square on June 4th is a useful time to remember. When they were faced with a real effort towards freedom, they crushed it militarily. They crushed it ruthlessly. And they felt that they had no choice. And they have since spent the last 30 years wiping it out from the memory of the Chinese people. It's not in the history textbooks. It's not something you can go back and look at. You can't find it on their internet. From their standpoint, this is a perfect example of what George Orwell wrote in his novel called 1984. They just created a memory hole. They erased it. It didn't fit their vision of the world. I think when I look back on that, I realized that our interpretation, our shock, was almost silly. Once you understood that this was a ruthless, Leninist, centralized party operating within a Chinese tradition of authoritarian centralism, why wouldn't you think they're going to crush dissent? And I think that's something we've got to recognize today, that the number of people in China who are actively trying to become free is almost certainly smaller than the number of people who are descending on the Soviet Union at any point in, in the Soviet period. So when I look at all that, I really begin to think about we need to reflect on the fact that, first of all, this whole notion that China wants to change is a myth. China wants to win. China wants to develop economically. China wants to have the most modern technology. But there's zero evidence that the people that matter in China have any interest in dramatically changing. I think the the second myth that really hit me is this notion that China is inherently peaceful. The Chinese don't have any great habits of warfare, etc. Now, my father fought in Korea in 1953. The Chinese in Korea were very, very effective. And when they launched their surprise attack in the winter of 1950, they had moved 250,000 Chinese into Korea. And despite all of our advantages, we did not know it. They surprised us 100 percent. 
They fought very effectively. Only the sheer scale of American capabilities enabled us to stop them. And they've been fighting for a long time. Remember that the Chinese Communist Party is fighting both the Japanese and the Chinese nationalists called the Kuomintang for decades. They survived the war with Japan. They then won the civil war with the Kuomintang or the nationalists, drove them to Taiwan, and they occupied the country. That's in the immediate past. So to think that these guys are soft, they've since fought a short war with India. They fought a short war with Vietnam. They fought a brief skirmish with Russia. They're not automatically peaceful. But it goes deeper than that. And this is why, as a historian, I always try to get people to think about history. China actually emerged out of a 250-year period called the Warring States. It was a time of constant warfare, which only ended when the Qing Dynasty unified China by conquering the last free state in 221 BC. And in fact, the founder of modern China called himself emperor. It was the first person to call himself emperor. And it became, China was really named after the Qin Dynasty, which was the unifying system. Before that, 300 years earlier, Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War, which you can find in a library. A remarkable book, very short. And it's fascinating because Sun Tzu doesn't write The Art of War for generals. What he says is that war is a matter of survival for the state and therefore has to be studied by statesmen. And Sun Tzu is writing a very subtle approach to warfare. And he's doing so based on hundreds of years of warfare. So this notion that somehow they're these nice, peaceful people and they don't ever threaten anybody else requires you to know nothing about Chinese history. And in fact, what's sobering is when you study Sun Tzu, you really understand Xi Jinping so much better because Xi Jinping thoroughly understands Sun Tzu and thoroughly understands the Chinese model of war. Sun Tzu basically says the greatest of all generals win bloodless victories. It's a very subtle, sophisticated concept, totally opposite of the Western way of war. The greatest of all generals win bloodless victories. Now, what does that mean? It means you use bribery, you use spies, you use psychological warfare, you figure out methods of building so much power around your opponent that they collapse without fighting, that actually, in his mind, Sun Tzu, he believed that fighting was a sign of failure, it was a sign of weakness. It meant you hadn't done your job right. He says at one point, and I'm quoting from Sun Tzu, to subdue the enemy while fighting is the acme of skill. This is dramatically more subtle and more difficult than the Western way of war. Sun Tzu is saying, why would you get into a fight like that? If you're clever, the enemy will never fight you because you'll surround them and you will break them. So. When you look at it, there are long periods in Chinese history when there's a great deal of conflict. And in fact, you have dynasty after dynasty replaced by a follow-on dynasty. The last great imperial dynasty, the Great Qing, was created by the Manchu, who came out of Manchuria, and they conquered the rest of China. They then dramatically expanded China to the west. It's the Manchu who create the modern borders of China. And they do it because they are very aggressive conquerors, and they were very expansionist. And they frankly, from 1636, when they started taking over China, they stay on offense until about 1800, 
And some of the most difficult problems in China, in Tibet and further west with the Uyghurs who are Muslims, actually grew out of conquest by the Qing during the period of power. Only after 1800, as the Western nations begin to pull away from China in military power, do you begin to see the empire on defense. Now think about this. Chinese history is about 5,000 years long. And they have a couple occasions when the Mongols and the Manchu come in and sweep over the country as outsiders. And in every occasion, they just absorb them because they have a high civilization. They're very sophisticated. They're very wealthy. They're very well educated. And in order to run a country the size of China, you can't run it with Mongolian models. So the Mongols, as soon as they conquer it, immediately absorb Chinese mandarins to help them run the country. It's impossible to run without the Chinese. The same thing happens with the Manchu. Once they take over the country, they need the Chinese to run it. So the Chinese have no particular experience of actually being consistently humiliated by foreigners. They've been conquered twice, but the conquest was rapidly absorbed into China. Then starting in the 1840s, they're faced with real humiliation. They're faced with foreign powers who are so militarily superior that they cannot fight against them. Ironically, given our own current problems with opioids and with fentanyl, the first real break is the Opium War in 1842, fought by the British to force the Chinese to buy opium. And I think all of us in the West should have some sense of caution when we look at China and realize that they didn't want to accept the opium, they fought against it, and only by military defeat were they forced to accept it as a trade process. So from a Chinese perspective, after being the Middle Kingdom, the center of the earth, the richest nation in the world, certainly up to about 1800, without any question, they were the wealthiest country in the world. All of a sudden, they're being humiliated by these foreigners. And from 1842 to the defeat of the Japanese in 1945, there's this continuous series of foreigners who do things to the Chinese that make them feel humiliated, that make them feel their entire civilization is under threat. And if you watch what the Chinese are doing, they have a very deep sense that the modern rise first of the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the, the Kuomintang, and then the communists under the leadership of Mao Zedong, they're both trying to reestablish Chinese nationalism. They're both trying to erase this humiliation at the hands of foreigners. Their policies are very, very nationalist in the sense that they want China to take its rightful place in the world. Mao launches in the late 1950s a great leap forward in which millions starved to death because he was so desperate to catch up with the West that he forced people to do things that just plain didn't work. And then he was so worried about losing power to rational moderates that he launched a cultural revolution in the 60s in which he aroused basically teenagers to go out and terrorize the rest of the country, created huge amounts of turmoil and suffering. In fact, if you look at somebody like Xi Jinping, he actually was sent to the countryside as part of this. His father was sent to the countryside. Uh, even somebody as powerful as Deng Xiaoping was both sent to the countryside where he worked in a tractor factory, and his son was thrown out of the third floor of a, of a university dormitory and was crippled for life. So the Cultural Revolution was a terrible moment. And the modern leadership came out of that. They decided, once Mao died in the late 70s, they said, you know, we gotta find a way to govern ourselves that is not constantly moved by this kind of craziness. And we have to find a way 
to economically and technologically catch up with the West and then surpass it. It is one of the most amazing 40 years of continuous progress of any country in the world. It is really a remarkable achievement, but it's an achievement of a dictatorship. It's an achievement of a system dedicated to maintaining its own dictatorship. I think the time has come where we have no choice except to really start thinking about a realistic China policy. And to do that, I think the first step has to be really thinking about the nature of China. I think we have to accept that the Chinese really want to be Chinese. They don't want to be Western. They don't particularly think that our model of politics is useful. They think it's destructive, chaotic, involves way too much infighting, has no sense of long-term reform. They think their system, for all of its weaknesses, is actually working for them. We're now going to be living next to a billion, 400 million people with an advanced society, enormous economic capability, thousands and thousands of scientists, many of them trained at MIT and Harvard and Stanford and Caltech, and they're going to be a major force in the world. So they're going to be a worldwide power. Furthermore, if you get a billion, 400 million people and they start really developing and you have a huge middle class coming online, they want better food, they want more protein, they want a lot more beef, they want more chicken, they also want more minerals. Just to do what they want to do in technology, the amount of copper they're going to use will make them the largest users of copper in history. And so they're looking all over the world for oil, for every possible kind of requirement. And that makes them, again, a worldwide trading partner going everywhere to invest. Their investments in Africa are amazing. And the Belt and Road Initiative gives them an explanation that sounds great. But if you actually look at the details, it's not a Belt and Road plan. It's really the framework under which they go everywhere in the world and say, you're now part of our Belt and Road Initiative. And they recently had a meeting in Beijing talking about getting investments from China, getting support from China, being involved in trade with China. So inevitably, China is going to be a worldwide power. In fact, I would argue because the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia by itself is just too small, that China is the only other worldwide power other than the United States and that that is a reality we have to deal with. Furthermore, it's going to be a very aggressive worldwide power. If you look at what they're doing in the South China Sea, they are beginning to build artificial islands for a practical reason. Their goal ultimately is to define most of the South China Sea as Chinese, which would dramatically expand the size of the country. And again, it fits the Sun Tzu model. They're not going to fight anybody. They're not out there with a the Navy trying to conquer anybody. They're just building islands. Why are you mad at them for building islands? The islands are sort of peaceful, except we just put airfields on them. We just built a port. We just brought in anti-aircraft missiles. But we're really being very defensive, and we're really not trying to do anything aggressive. I also think we have to recognize that the 5G competition with Huawei is really potentially a decisive defeat for the West. The fact is, 5G technology is an enormous breakthrough. As you know, we've already done several podcasts about it. This is one of the most important breakthroughs in creating the next generation internet and the next generation communications. The fact is, if we don't find a way to meet the Chinese challenge and we allow the Chinese to dominate the next generation internet and the next generation communication, we will have taken a huge step towards living in a Chinese-defined world. And then we'll realize how truly big the differences are 
in our two civilizations. And we'll have to ask ourselves the question, how comfortable are we going to be if American civilization is redefined to fit Chinese characteristics? When we come back, I'll be joined by Dr. Jonathan Ward, the author of China's Vision of Victory. America has to understand that this could be a very tough contest, so we've got to be ready. I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Newt's World, Stamps.com. I'm joined by Mark Krajansky, Stamps.com's Vice President of Marketing. Why would a small business need Stamps.com when they can just use a meter or go to the post office? Small business owners are really just too busy to take trips to the post office, especially when they don't have to. They have to leave what they're doing, drive to the post office, deal with the traffic and parking and lug their letters and packages and so on. It's a real hassle. You know, many small businesses have very few resources. Postage meters are often way too expensive for small businesses. They typically come with long-term commitments. You have to lease a machine. You have to buy their ink and supplies and more. It's a lot to ask for a small business. And they don't have a lot of the functionality that an online postage service like Stamps.com has such as address correction to eliminate return mail, address books you can utilize, integrations with popular small business software like QuickBooks, and more. And Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools that helps small businesses to be more productive and work more efficiently. With Stamps.com, you can access all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right from your computer for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send on your own time, whenever you need it, you know, 24-7. It's really as easy as that. So we really help make the U.S. Postal Service easier to access for small businesses all over the country. Right now, Newt's World listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Newt. That's stamps.com. Enter Newt. N-E-W-T. Jonathan Ward, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us, and I hope that this podcast, along with the book that we're going to do this fall, will have some impact on increasing Americans' awareness of the importance of China. But I would like to start... With your own background, how did you get interested in China? My first year out of school, decided to backpack around China. I got a motorcycle, rode it around Xinjiang out in the northwest deserts, went through Tibet, you know, hitchhiking with truck drivers and hiding from the Chinese army at checkposts, and got a bicycle, rode it across southern China, eventually got on Indonesian cargo ships and went across the South China Sea. So a lot of my experience was going out and staying in villages, living with people, you know, eating with people and and traveling with them. And I got to know China through its people, which was a wonderful experience. And all of that led me to the question of where is this country really going? And eventually I wound up at Oxford doing a PhD on China-India relations, and that allowed me this much deeper investigation into the nature of the country. What was the focus of your studies at Oxford? China is a big topic. So my PhD topic, basically the question of why did India and China go to war? Because they fought a war 
1962, the two largest nations in Asia, then they decided they're going to be friends. And then within a decade after their respective independence and national founding, they were at war in the Himalayas. So I had access to all these Communist Party archives that helped explain this. Looking at these archives and at the, the sort of thinking of China's leaders and, and diplomats and such gave me a sense of China's idea of national destiny, this idea they were a nation that had been humiliated, that they had to resurrect themselves, and they were willing to take on other major countries. So in the Cold War, they, of course, you know, fought the United States and Korea. They split with the USSR. They fought India. They were really willing to take on just about everybody in order to pursue this path of restoration. First of all, you talk about archives. How did you get into the Chinese archives? They were open for a while. I mean, there was a sort of time when they were opening up a little bit under Hu Jintao, and I was actually there when Xi Jinping closed them down. So for a month or more, I was in there just reading everything. And then I went in one day and they were all shut. And and I thought I was going to change my plane ticket and, you know, wait for them to open up. But they've been shut ever since. And that was about five years ago. So Xi Jinping decided to close down all kinds of things. So you have some kind of a historic view of how China's been evolving over the last 15 years. How would you say it's different now? It changed a lot. Ten years ago, the national conversation, it was all about how China was lagging behind and it had to modernize and had to catch up with the world and sort of build its economy. Then the last year that I was in China, the last full year in 2014, which was under Xi Jinping, the new president, well, he's not new now, but it was everybody wanted to talk to me about going to war with Japan, going to war with other neighbors. It's very militaristic, and that was a giant change, I found. Do you think that's a reflection of Xi Jinping or why? we having that transition? I think it's something we've got to keep an eye on as a country. I mean, one of the biggest things we need to understand is is how China, sort of in, in Chinese language, what the discussion really is. But, but I think it also has much deeper roots. I mean, you know, Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China, was a very violent individual. I mean, he ranks with Stalin and Hitler as one of the most, you know, bloody dictators in human history. So there's a lot of violent discourse. And I think the Communist Party, you know, even under Deng Xiaoping brought back, rather post Deng Xiaoping, brought this sort of anti-Western, anti-Japanese narrative into the schools in China, into the media in order to sort of consolidate everybody after the massacres at Tiananmen Square. I think Xi Jinping is, you know, his major project is taking China global, um, not only economically, but building a military that can go beyond China's region. And I think his sense of military prowess and power is, you know, finding its way into into the public discourse. But it's also something that has much deeper roots. Well, when, when you talk about um, national conversation, I mean, part of what Xi Jinping has been trying to communicate is, is what, what he talks about as a China dream. How real is that and how much do you think that reflects goals that the Chinese people sign up for? The China dream is, is actually just one new chapter in a very old idea. I mean, this goes back even before Mao Zedong. It goes back 100 years at least to Sun Yat-sen. And it's this idea of China being humiliated and China's going to resurrect itself. Today, people call it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Mao Zedong called it the new China. The old China was a suffering place that had been humiliated by the world. And now there's a new China. And the Chinese people have stood up. 
And Xi Jinping calls it the China dream. And this is something he applies to everything. There's a China dream to build a powerful military. There's a China dream to go to space. There's all sorts of superpower aspirations. And I think this is something that we're going to have to stay incredibly observant about as a country. The goals of the Communist Party under Xi Jinping are very clear. It's to become essentially the world's dominant superpower. It's to fulfill this vision of national resurrection, this idea that by the year 2049, which is 100 years from the founding of the People's Republic of China, at that point, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation will be fulfilled and China will become the world's dominant power. And what we're looking at is a country that doesn't see itself necessarily as a rising country. It sees itself as a returning country. Chinese civilization is thousands of years old. They dominated their region for essentially all of their known history. And then suddenly they had this moment where they were humiliated at the hands of, you know, European imperial powers and Japan and everybody. And now they're going to return to their former glory and essentially become the world's dominant power again. So it's very ideological. It's a very deep sense of national destiny. I think it's one of the deepest senses of national destiny that exists in the world today. And it includes a very thorough and carefully planned uh, vision of the future that goes out 30 years. And and you look at all the, the strategies that go into this. And I think on your podcast, you've talked about the Belt and Road, which is a project of integrating, you know, basically all of the continents around the world. I mean, not only Asia and Europe, but Africa and Latin America, all back to China so that China becomes the economic center of the world. It's this plan of building a military that can take on the United States. It will be as good, if not better than the U.S., It's a plan called Made in China 2025 that's meant to dominate, to achieve mastery of 10 different strategic industries. I mean, all of these things are are very, very well thought out. So we're dealing with something that, unlike most countries or organizations that we've ever dealt with as the United States, this is a very deep thinking, careful planning, effectively executing organization. So as ideological as it is, we can't underestimate what they are able to do. It struck me, though, that there's a certain grand irony in that we have a leader who talks about making America great again, and they have a leader who talks about the China dream. You have these two competing visionary senses of the future. I think America has found itself in a position where we've been just taking care of a world that's already sort of been built by American power. I mean, what some people call the Pax Americana. I mean, our global network of alliances, I mean, our very powerful economy. I mean, all of these things have been readily built. We just had the American century. We won the Cold War. We won the World Wars. We were very successful. And and then I think we lacked a post-Cold War vision. And, you know, we decided to let all the authoritarian dictatorships into the you know, American order to trade with them, to engage with them economically, to send our companies out, to go and you know, do business in China and such, and hoping that this would change them and sort of bring them into this world order as our friend. And what we found instead was that they basically brought on all the, all of our technology and capabilities and are using those to fulfill their own idea, which is this great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So, so I think once again, we have to start thinking big. We have to get ready to compete with a superpower. It's an economic superpower. I think we have an economic competition that we have got to win because it would be very, very bad for the United States if China did in fact become the world's dominant power. As Xi Jinping put it, They say that they have the invincible force of 1.3 billion people and an infinite stage for their era. 
And the idea is it's, it's, they have plans on how to get there, but once they reach this point, it's really about assuming power. And then the question is, what would they like to do with it? I mean, I think even they don't know what that would look like, but the path now is really about gaining power and becoming this dominant country. But why should the average American care? I mean, so the Chinese dominate the world. Why will that affect our lives? This comes down to a question of what our country really is meant to be and what it represents, the values of America. We're a system that's built on rights and freedom. Think about the path of the United States, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the World Wars. We've worked so hard to carve out this place in the world where rights and freedom are the way of life. And in China, this is just not the case. You're talking about a place where freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, um, these things don't exist. Dissidents are are imprisoned and executed. People are now being put in concentration camps in, in Xinjiang, which is this northwest part of China. You're talking about the world's most powerful dictatorship. And the idea that we were going to change them by engaging economically has clearly failed. And the idea that they're going to become friendlier to the U.S. or to our values only because they now gain power in addition to economic strength is, uh, I think, even more dangerous. So it's always about who's holding power. We really have to ask ourselves if an organization such as the Chinese Communist Party, which in fact has one of the highest death counts in human history, and some people estimated it up to 40 to 60 million people under Mao Zedong and other Communist Party leaders. I mean, do we really want them to be running the world? I've been trying to explain the centrality of the Chinese Communist Party. The number one goal of Xi Jinping has to be to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power. And everything comes from that. But how would you interpret it? I think that is important. Look more broadly at human history, whether it's democracies or dictatorships or feudalist kingdoms or empires. I mean, there's, a, there's something that's about holding on to power, and then there's the other side is what you're doing with it. I mean, I think she has a very clear imperial vision in the Belt and Road and the military modernization plan, the building of a massive military, the desire to master emerging technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence or 5G or their ambitions in space, in the deep sea. This is much more than holding on to power. This is an incredibly ambitious regime. It's a regime who believes I think on one level, for whatever its insecurities may be, the discourse of this country is about our time has, has come. They said in their official news agency, by 2050, two centuries after the opium wars, which plunged the Middle Kingdom into a period of hurt and shame, China is set to regain its might and reascend to the top of the world. They're out there conducting very successful diplomacy with even some of our closest allies. I mean, you look at right now the battle for 5G in Britain, this idea that Huawei, a Chinese company founded by a former People's Liberation Army officer, is going to build pieces of the infrastructure of our traditionally best allies in the world. I mean, they're succeeding at so much of this. You know, China today is a global power. It's not just a regional power. I try to describe part of the difference that Xi Jinping is the general secretary of the Communist Party, the chairman of the military commission, and the president of the People's Republic of China in that order. And if our news media actually referred to him as general secretary, you'd have a totally different sense of who he is and what motivates him 
whereas by referring to him as president, we normalize him into a Western political model. What's your reaction to that hierarchy? I think he's elevated the importance of military power. I mean, in the end, we have to remember that the Chinese military is, is the party's military. I remember when I used to travel around and I'd see, you know, just happen upon Chinese bases and such. And there's this thing about Ting Dong, uh, which is listen to the party's command. The PLA, I think, I think it'd be very useful to the American public to have a sense of what, you know, training manuals and ideological indoctrination looks like. I mean, that's probably obtainable. It's meant to instill an absolute loyalty to the party. She has consolidated power in a way that some say has not happened since Mao Zedong. I, I suppose that's accurate. And in the end, it's about the, the hierarchy there. I mean, it's the party, the military, and then really the rest of it. We've done everything we possibly can to normalize China, essentially, in our own minds. And I think that's led to some pretty poor strategy and bad thinking on what the situation really is. We trade with them because they're you know, growing rich and, and technologically advanced and all of this. We've decided that that it's not really communism, but we forget that it's Leninism, which is essentially a one-party dictatorship, and that's never changed. And I think we wrote that out of the narrative so for our own convenience. So given the importance you place on the military role, would you put the military commission ahead of being the general secretary, or is the general secretary still, because of the power of the party, in the end, the dominant system? The party and the military go hand in hand, essentially, so he has to make control, certainly, of, of both. But he's probably had to work hardest to uh, consolidate his power over the military, and, and that's obviously very important to him right now. Xi Jinping, I mean, we think about this after you know, 70 years of relative peace in the Pacific, he's saying on a regular basis, we must prepare to fight and win wars. So what's he talking about? I mean, he's building a military that's designed to deter the United States or to take on the United States on some level if there were to be a conflict. And he's talking about being prepared to fight and win wars. So I think it's clearly important to him personally, and that's very dangerous for the rest of us. If you could talk personally to every American... What are the things you wish they knew about China? We have to understand that this is our greatest challenge. Very few people alive today have had to deal with a foreign policy challenge of this scale. I mean, we haven't seen this since, I think, the early Cold War. The last time that the world order was, you know, had this kind of stress being put on it was really the, the opening decades of the Cold War. We have to be ready to think broadly about the world again. There has to be American leadership. It's our destiny to be engaged with the world. And American leadership is critical to, to whether or not we come out of this all right. America has to understand that this this could be a very tough contest. We've got to be ready. We have a lot of great expertise on China and in this country and around the world. But what we really have to get ready for is what to do about this new challenge. One, we've got to win this economic competition. We're a $20 trillion economy. We're the, the richest and most powerful country in human history. And, and we have not lost this thing yet. We, we have not even started to contend with it. We've got to start thinking about how to win the economic competition. And that includes empowering our companies to, to do well in a global world, but a world that's contested and not just open markets. We've got to have a great, robust diplomacy with all our true friends and allies. And then we've got to hold the military balance. You can't let a leader like Xi Jinping ever have a good day to pick a fight. Don't let it get easy for Putin or Xi Jinping to actually try and 
challenge us militarily. And, and this is what we saw in the last five years. I was living in China when the South China Sea was getting started and when Putin took Crimea. And I remember on Chinese television, there was in Chinese language, there was um, these reports on just essentially very supportive of Russia and Crimea. And the two were working together to start pushing at the edges of American power. We've got to be prepared to win on the China front. And what it really means is economic competition if we want to avoid you know, worse outcomes. Have you looked at much at Huawei and 5G as sort of a an area of Chinese strategic development? This is very important because right now Huawei, which is, they say that it's a privately held company. I don't think anyone's done the, the right investigative work to figure out what it really is. It's very dangerous. We can't have a company that's beholden to the Chinese state out there building next generation telecommunications architecture all around the world, including some of our allies. If you have any doubts about why a company like Huawei should not be operating in the U.S. or in democratic allies, I mean, here's what China's national intelligence law says. Any organization and citizen shall, in accordance with the law, support, provide assistance, and cooperate in national intelligence work and guard the secrecy of any national intelligence work that they are aware of. The state shall protect individuals and organizations that support, cooperate with, and collaborate in national intelligence work. And then Ren Zhengfen himself, the founder of Huawei, who was a PLA officer, I think the world needs to get to know him a lot better, because what we'll find, I think, is is not so nice. I'm going to give you an example here where he says he's studying Western companies and he basically says we have to only by learning from them can we defeat them one day. And this is a man who not only being a, a PLA officer, I mean, he wrote an ode to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He tells military stories to his organization. He even uses Mao's strategies to describe how they operate as a business. So I think there's just so much information there that could help us and be much more successful in, in our diplomacy to counter it. Let me ask from the opposite direction. If Americans just can't get their act together and we can't change, what do you think will happen? I think we see the end of an American-led world. It's really the next decade is what matters. We've got to start thinking longer term and, and realizing that this is about how power works in the 21st century. It's all the emerging technologies. It's a global system. It's You don't want somebody else building, particularly a system, the political system that they run is designed to crush rights and freedoms, I think. Every 50 years, we get dictatorships and democracies. And it happened in the first half of the 20th century. It happened in the Cold War. And it's happening again. And the difference here is that they've feasted on our technological advancements and industrial advancements and on the generosity of the United States in inviting China into the world, even under the leadership of uh, this dictatorship, which, you know, you think about even in the time in which we were beginning to open to them, there was the massacre at Tiananmen Square. And the 30th anniversary of that massacre is coming up. It happened in 1989. What happens is you have all these young people you know, just students and everything that are out there in Tiananmen Square, and they're carrying basically a Statue of Liberty. And then Deng Xiaoping sends in tanks to kill these people, to just kill them all. A few years later, we gave them most favored nation status. It is amazing. Listen, let me thank you. This has been extraordinarily helpful. Newt, thank you for your time, and, and, and I think it's so important for all of us who share this mission of awakening the United States to this challenge, um, preparing us to, to succeed in this great competition. 
Next, I'll discuss how the United States must stand up against China's global dominance. Dr. Jonathan Ward points out with his book, China's Vision of Victory, that we really have a competitor who intends to win, who has a particular model of how to achieve that victory, and who in many ways has done remarkably well. I think we have to recognize the scale of the challenge we're faced with. The Chinese government has a whole series of parallel strategies all of them designed to expand Chinese power. You have to see the South China Sea as a piece of a larger story. You have to see the Belt and Road Initiative as a piece of the larger story. You have to see their investment in Huawei and 5G technology as a piece of the whole story. And you have to see their investments in space, their modernization of their military. Day after day, you find things where they are methodically moving, And in some places, it's very impressive. Go out sometime and ride Amtrak, and then realize that the Chinese have over 11,000 miles of high-speed rail, and they're going to have over 20,000 in the next decade. Now, how come they can build high-speed rail and we can't? And that's the kind of thing you're seeing again and again. And if you were Chinese, and you landed at Kennedy or LaGuardia, and you looked at the mess and you looked at the lack of infrastructure, and you looked at the decay of the subways, would you particularly be afraid of the American future? Or would you look at what you've been doing in your country and say, you know, we've got a real chance to win. We're up against an opponent who has a very real chance to win, who could well dominate. And we've got to decide how we're going to deal with it. And I think part of what makes the whole issue of tariffs so important is is the tariffs are simply a tool. President Trump has figured out that the Chinese routinely cheat on trade at every level. They seal off their own country, so if they don't want high technology competitors, they don't let them in, period. They require people to have communists on their board of directors for their Chinese subsidiaries. They create environments in which their side wins. They have an entire part of the People's Liberation Army dedicated to stealing our intellectual secrets. And so what you have going on right now is a very serious effort by the United States to begin to change Chinese behavior, to get them to agree that there are things they won't do anymore. And that's why, for example, the Chinese government has been so adamant that it doesn't want to cave in on things like intellectual property rights in a way which would stop it from stealing. And I think that this is going to continue for a while. My, My guess is that the things we need the Chinese to do to be acceptable will be unacceptable to the Chinese dictatorship and that they will prefer, at least for the short run, to have an economic war with us rather than to agree to any kind of binding agreement. Now, the, the political and the psychological pressure may be such that we accept a relatively bad deal. If that happens, my prediction is within four or five years, we'll be right back at the same place because they will relentlessly do everything they can to cheat. And we currently don't have the mechanisms to stop them. So I think what we're living through is really the beginning of a very long competition. 
based on everything I've read and studied and thought about, and thinking back to my own experiences in the Cold War, I believe either the Chinese are going to win quickly and within 30 or 40 years will be the dominant force on the planet, or we will have mobilized and structured in such a way that we will have a competition with them that lasts several hundred years until their system finally does, in fact, begin to change just because in the long run, freedom is actually better than tyranny and openness actually is better than a closed police state. The victory for us is a very long way off. The danger to us is starting with Huawei and 5G and the chance of the Chinese to define the internet and define communications and the work they're doing all over the world to create relationships that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. There's a very grave danger that the Chinese will have won this competition, certainly within the next 30 to 40 years. We're just at the beginning of this conversation as a country, and that's why I think it's so really, really important that we come to grips with what China really is and what we have to do uh, in order to deal with the real China, not with the China that we wish existed. And this is something I'll come back to again and again, because I think it is probably the central challenge for our children and grandchildren and the kind of world they're going to live in and the kind of civilization they're going to inherit. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Jonathan Ward. You can read more about China and the road ahead, including a link to my Newsweek cover story and to Dr. Ward's book on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest award for bravery in combat. For Memorial Day, we'll honor those who served, fought, and died for our country. He was just burned over his whole body, and he survived this heaven knows how. But he survived it, and his act was so extraordinary. There's pictures of him lying on a gurney, and they rushed his Medal of Honor through the system, and they presented it to him because they were afraid he was going to die, and they wanted him to receive it while he was still alive. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.